take off your sandals, take off your shoes. No, um, you don't need to wash your feet and I'm not going to do it for you. But I, this is, it's, it's kind of crazy when you just think about that, that statement, that invitation to take off your shoes, take off your sandals, are some of the first words Moses ever heard from God. So Exodus 3, the story of the burning bush, it's literally like, oh, there's a bush on fire. I'm going to go check this out. Moses, Moses. And he's like, oh, it's me. Don't come any closer is what he says. And then take off your shoes. Okay. You never thought about that? That that's kind of weird? No? Okay, that's just me. Whatever. All right, I'm up here all alone. And the fact that I think the Bible's weird, you guys have it all figured out. The, it's, it's interesting when we look through the burning bush moment with, with Moses here as he enters into, barefoot as it may be, this experience that provides him with a revelation of who God is. They are barefoot before the burning bush. He hears this statement that comes from the burning bush of who God is, his name being I am. That's how he defines himself. And, and similarly, not just a revelation of God in this statement of I am, the name of God, but in the sign of a burning bush. There's a statement and a sign here with barefoot Moses. And around this revelation of God, around this sign and the statement, Moses also gets brought into a, an illumination of his own identity, his own vocation. Moses, who up to this point in the story, and we're only three chapters in, has gone from being born to a family of slaves, being raised by Egyptian royalty, to then murder on the run, to now living as a nomadic shepherd. Like, Moses, who are you? He, you would get a bundle of answers from Moses. He doesn't even know who he is. And yet there at the burning bush moment, what happens is this confused nomadic shepherd becomes the resolved shepherd of Israel. This moment of the burning bush, this holy ground moment, brings him from confused and isolated, not knowing who he is, to this resolve, this resolution of who he is, who he's meant to be, and the mission that he's been called to. And so then the story goes from there with the burning bush of the exodus being brought out of slavery in Egypt for all of God's people. Their trek through the wilderness, then coming to the promised land, and all of it began with a pair of shoes left in the sand. I'm not sure there's any of us in this room who don't kind of secretly desire, at least at some level, a burning bush moment. Like some moment, some deep revelation of God, for God to kind of step out of the all my questions and before me kind of go, this is who I am. Even more than that, for us to have some illumination of our own identity. Many of us are just as confused as Moses of who I am, the stories that you live in, the city that you live in. Most of you are not from Los Angeles. And so even just, who are you? And just to think about that geographically, you would get a whole host of answers, let alone all the other desires and career paths that are set before us. Who are? We are just as confused, if not more, than Moses. And so a lot of us long for, desire some kind of illumination of our identity. This is who I am, and to have a resolution in receiving that. In the fourth gospel, John, in recounting the life of Jesus, has written his gospel so as to present us with not just one, but seven burning bush moments. Throughout John's gospel, there are seven moments of I am statements that are followed with these signs that, that take us deeper into what that means. And all of them are simultaneously, just like the burning bush, a revelation of who God is in Christ and an illumination of our own identity, who we are to him. 
And so there's the seven I am statements. We've looked at uh, bread last week. And then there's the seven signs, the feeding of the 5,000, Jesus walking on water. It's these, this burning bush moment, speaking out who God's identity is, and then a sign that shows and details what it's all about. And so this is what our I Am series has been, us moving through all of these I Am statements, these little burning bush moments, as much as we may want them, that John, in writing the story of Jesus, believes there's been seven of this fullness, this overwhelming amount of burning bush moments where God's personhood is revealed to us and our identity is set before us for us to have all the answers brought to us. And so today we're looking at John chapter 9, if you want to begin to turn there in your Bibles. As we arrive at week three of our I Am series, and so today we are making our way through another one of these burning bush moments, another one of these holy ground moments. And so once you find your way to John chapter nine, I'm gonna invite you to join me in standing for the reading of the scriptures. For those of you that are able, as we stand, uh, we once, as I say regularly, this is, this is an opportunity for us to, with our bodies, say uh, a, a, this, what we're reading, what we're entering into today is for our whole selves, that you are not just a brain on a stick. You are a soul and body whole self, and so we bring all of ourselves to God and to scriptures. And so John chapter 9. Well, let's pray first. God, as we enter into... Uh, another one of these little burning bush moments, another one of these holy ground moments in John's gospel. Um, I pray that like um, Moses, that there would be an appropriate, um, God, just posture before us today to receive this for what it is, to allow these words to be heard as if they were being spoken from uh, the burning bush. Because what we're going to find is that they're actually being spoken by something so much greater than a, just a burning bush, but, but you, God, incarnate in your Son and at work within our world. And so help us to receive this revelation of God. Would you take us deeper into what this says and illuminates about our own identity and our own vaca- vocation? So God, would you speak through the scriptures today? John chapter nine. As he, being Jesus, was passing by, he saw a man blind from birth, His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Neither this man nor his parents sinned, Jesus answered. This came about so God's works might be displayed in him. We must do the works of him who sent me while it is still day. Night is coming when no one can work, and as long as I'm in the world, I am the light of the world. After he said these things, he spit on the ground and made some mud from the saliva and that spread the mud on the blind man's eyes. Go, he told him, wash in the pool of Siloam, which means sent. So he left, washed, and came back seeing. His neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar said, isn't this the one who used to sit begging? Some said, he's the one. Others were saying, no, but he looks like him. But he kept saying, no, I am the one. I'm the same person. So they asked him, then how were your eyes opened? He answered, the man called Jesus made mud, spread it on my eyes and told me, go to Siloam and wash. So I went and I washed and I received my sight. Well, where is he? They asked. I don't know, he said. They brought the man who used to be blind then to the Pharisees. The day that Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes was a Sabbath. Then the Pharisees asked him again how he received his sight. 
Well, he put some mud on my eyes, he told them. I washed and I can see. Some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God because he doesn't keep the Sabbath. But others were saying, how can a sinful man perform these kinds of signs? And there was a division among the Pharisees. Again, they asked the blind man, what do you say about him since he opened your eyes? Well, he's a prophet, he said. The Jews did not believe this about him, that he was blind and received sight, until they summoned his parents of the one who had received his sight. They asked them, his parents, is this your son, the one you say was born blind? How then does he now see? We know this is our son and that he was born blind, his parents answered, but we don't know how he now sees and we don't know who opened his eyes. Ask him, he's of age, he'll speak for himself. His parents said these things because they were afraid of the Jews since the Jews had already agreed that if anyone confessed him as the Messiah, he would be banned from the synagogue. This is why his parents said, he's of age, ask him. So a second time, they summoned the man who had been born blind and they told him, give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. He answered, whether or not he's a sinner, I don't know. But one thing I know, I was blind and now I see. And then they asked him, well, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? I already told you, he said, and you didn't listen. Why do you want to hear it again? You don't want to become his disciples too, do you? They ridiculed him. You're that man's disciple, but we're Moses' disciples. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but this man, we don't know where he's from. Well, this is an amazing thing, the man told them. You don't know where he's from, yet he opened my eyes. We know that God doesn't listen to sinners, but if anyone is God-fearing and does his will, he listens to him. Throughout history, no one has ever heard of someone opening the eyes of a person born blind. If this man were not from God, he wouldn't be able to do anything. You were born entirely in sin, they replied. And, they, and are you trying to teach us? Then they threw him out. Jesus heard that they had thrown the man out. And when he found him, he asked, do you believe in the son of man? Well, who is he, sir, that I may believe in him, he asked. Jesus answered, you have seen him. In fact, he's the one speaking with you right now. I believe, Lord, he said, and he worshiped him. Jesus said, I came into this world for judgment in order that those who do not see will, become, will see and those who do see will become blind. Some of the Pharisees who were with him heard these things and they asked, we aren't blind too, are we? If you were blind, Jesus told them, you wouldn't have sin. But now that you say we see, your sin remains. You may be seated. The universal fundamental symbol for so much of the human experience, and in particular, all of our varying spiritualities, is language of light. Humanity's search, we could summarize as a search for light, as a search for illumination, for enlightenment, Divine guidance, cosmic energy, justice, morality, life, love, honesty, peace, all of these things, regardless of spiritual background and the different doctrines that different people may have, everybody uses light as a primary metaphor for the deep search and hunger of the human heart. 
We know this even intrinsically, it seems. As kids, we sit down and we watch, well, maybe just for me, we sit down and watch Star Wars, and they talk about the light side of the force, and I immediately know that's the good guys, and the dark side is the bad guys. I don't need the explanation of the Jedi doctrines. I intrinsically get light equals good, dark equals bad. See, light is this unifying metaphor throughout history. It is the unifying symbol of humanity's search for the divine, our search for God or gods, our search for illumination, our search for life, our search for love, for justice, all of our search, the deep ache of the human heart could be summarized as a search for light. It's a search that became not just a search, but a story for the family of Jesus. The Jewish people, the, those shaped and raised and brought up and lived through the Hebrew scriptures, what we call the Old Testament. Just think about it. You go back to Genesis 1, the opening page of the Bible and the opening words of God. What are the first things that God says in Scripture are, let there be light. You could argue that that's exactly what God continues to speak over every page of the story. It's him constantly wanting to say and re-say again and again, where there's darkness, let there be light. We just talked about a moment ago in the burning bush. When God appears to Moses, how does he appear? Not just as a bush, but a burning bush, a flame, a light, a fire. As Moses goes into Egypt and they leads Israel out through the wilderness, how are they led through the desert by night? But a pillar of fire. As they come and they begin to build the tabernacle and then later the temple, what is there in the center of the temple but a menorah? a lampstand meant to be this little uh, makeshift burning bush, this reminder of Moses's burning bush moment. And when every time we come to the temple, here we are again with this, it's meant to look like a burning bush. And you continue through the stories all throughout uh, the book of Psalms. The book of Psalms is like 150 chapters of just a web of light imagery. When you read through the Psalms, light is justice and righteousness. Light is salvation and life. It's joy and gladness. It's self-awareness and revelation of God. Psalm 119 is that your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. Light is the story of the scriptures. As the prophets looked forward to the messianic age, the day when the awaited anointed one would come, when the day of the Lord would be here, when new creation would dawn, it would be a day of light and there would no longer be any night. And so all of this builds up to so many of the feasts that Israel celebrated throughout the years. The Feast of Booths, the Feast of Tents, we've talked about this in the past few weeks, was also called the Feast of Lights. You'll see behind me like a, a kind of rendering that uh, Google Images would just not give me something with a higher uh, resolution, so I'm sorry. But part of the Feast of Tabernacles was Israel like steeping themselves in this story of light, God leading our people out of darkness and in the midst of the wilderness, us having this light. And so they would light these 75 foot like burning bush menorah candles that were so bright and so light that it was said to be daytime in the temple even in the middle of the night. And the temple could be seen for miles and miles away. So even as you had all these people camping around side, they would have this light throughout the night over the course of the feast that's lighting up everything. So here, this is just incredible. Against this backdrop, specifically this backdrop, is where Jesus says in John 9, 5, what we just read, but also a little bit earlier in chapter 8, verse 12, this is the story in the context where Jesus stands up and says, I am the light of the world. 
He stands up and says, the God who said, let there be light. He's claiming identity with that God. The God who is in the burning bush, he's claiming to identify, I am that God. The God who led his people by the fire, by the light through the dead, I am that God. He is claiming that he is the fulfillment of Israel's story of light. But what's so profound is, as opposed to some other you know, would-be messiahs that would get up and say, I am the light of Israel, Jesus makes this radically inclusive claim that he's not just the light of Israel, but the light of the world. Not just Israel's story of light, but all of humanity's search for light is fulfilled and found in me, and specifically in me. As radically inclusive as his light of the world claim is, it's singularly exclusive, Notice as Jesus' words, I am the light of the world, is not I, I have the light, not I am a guide to the light, not I will point you to the light, not what I have within me is the light that you have within you and we all share this light, but a singularly exclusive I am the light of the world. It's, it's me. I am the revelation of the creator God. I am the illumination of righteousness and justice. I am the shining of salvation and life, Jesus says. I am the lamp of life and joy and gladness. I am the light by which you see how to be in this world. And deeper still, in verse eight, uh, chapter 8, verse 12 here, Jesus doesn't just say, I am the light of the world, but anyone who follows me will never walk in the darkness, but will have not just the light of the world, but the light of life. What is the light of life but, a, but the, 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 the light that leads to life, the light that gets at the deepest things that you hunger and long for? The, the real true you, the real true life that you're longing for, the real identity at the basis of who you are at the deepest level, that thing that you long for, the thing that you face so much resistance against because you want to be this deep person and yet you find the resistance that pushes you back, that kind of life that you are longing for, Jesus claims those who have the light of the world will also have that light and you'll no longer have to wander in the darkness. Uh, I used to be a youth pastor and so, um, which is, I guess is a good thing, but there's like a whole shtick now about youth pastors. So I feel like I have to go like, I'm, I was a youth pastor, but not like, you know, like the chairs turned backwards and like, you know, bad puns or whatever kind of youth, or like chubby bunny and like purity culture pastor. Um, not, not one of those. I was actually, man, it was, um, this is when I was on staff at the church in Reno and I, it was such this fascinating time. Um, Reno's the third most unchurched city in America. So here we have a huge amount of de-churched people in LA, but Reno is unchurched. They're like, you're like, Jonah and the whale, who? Like there's literally uh, no, none even like a background there. And so we had this youth ministry with all of these kids, most of which were either um, not Christians at all and they had just been brought and coming with their friends or were like first generation, they just became Christians or their parents just became Christians and they're still figuring things out. It was, it was fascinating. And so we had baptisms so, so regularly and we had these... Um, we did this whole framework of building out a youth ministry that was built around Paul's words in Colossians of presenting everyone mature. And so we took these kids through cultural engagement. We went to museums and talked about how to like, in, like receive and like enjoy art as a Christian. We watched movies. We listened to albums. During the summers, we would connect kids with different things that they wanted to do because many of them didn't have parents that were present. And so we had like classes on like how to change your oil or change a flat tire and photography classes. It was so rad and, and, and it smelled so bad. I would, I would, there's part of me that's like, man, I would never take that time away. And like, if someone was like, would you go back? I, I just, I don't know. I don't know. 
You see, the worst and the best part of it was every summer we would drive out to Redding, which is in the running, um, I think it's tied with Bakersfield as California's armpit. Um, so we drive out to Redding for like this summer camp. And so we had this like cheap like church van with no AC with a bunch of like newly made teenagers who, whose bodies were creating smells that they didn't know how to deal with yet. And so it's like a three hour drive in like the middle of June in Redding hot. So we just looked for as many stops as we could get. Like, I'll just get out, like, <gasps> breathe for a little bit. And so one of them was kind of towards the halfway point was the subway cave lava, lava tubes where we would stop and you would go down this stretch of stairs and you would come down to this about half mile, like, length of lava tubes up in the midst of California. And so you'd come around the corner into this main cave and then this tube that we'd go through. And literally, you come down and you turn off the lights. And it's not just like, oh, this is utter, like, utter darkness, like paralyzing darkness. And, and, the, and so we would just sit there for a moment and uh, you would just like take in the silence and then okay, we'll turn our flashlights back on and we'll walk together and, you know, check it out or whatever. And so there's one year where uh, it was always the high school boys, but we turn off the lights and one of the guys gets like three or four of the other guys to like, who can go the farthest, the fastest in this dark lava tube, basically with no lights. And uh, you can imagine that within like, just a few seconds, it's like, okay, we have to turn the lights on now because like one of them ran fa like face first into a wall and like messed up his hands. Two of them just fell down immediately. And one of them fell, tripped into a girl that we were just like, no, man, like that was, we know what's going on. You've been looking at her all week. You've been praying for her every night. Like we know what's going on here. So I, as I was thinking through Jesus's like invitation of saying, those who come to me, the light of the world, the light of light will never walk in darkness again. Jesus is here he is, he's intuiting something. If you come with me, you will have the light of life and the light of the world. Intuits, if you will never walk in the darkness, you presently are. Jesus's perspective on the human race and our search for light and our search for life is a leg race in a lava tube apart from him. And so Jesus is he's saying, but you don't have to live that way. Some of you, whether it's the light of the world and, and the divine or spiritual, kind of wanting to be connected to something like that, or it's just the questions of who am I and the light of your life, both of them have felt like a leg race in a lava tube, tripping and falling, and you're all over yourself, getting yourself up, patting yourself down, and I guess we'll try again, and it's exhausting for you. And the invitation of Jesus is, you don't have to live that way. But what does it mean for Jesus to be the light of the world? A lot of the world that's drenched in, walking in darkness. I, I love this. This turned into another sermon. So we're going to go rapid fire because I don't want to turn it into a second sermon, but it's so good. In chapter 9, verse 4, Jesus gives the mission statement of what it means to be the light of the world. So Jesus, you go, what does it mean to be the light of the world? Right here, verse 4. We must do the works of him who sent me while it's day. What's the light of the world? We must do the works of him who sent me while it is still day. So for him to be the light of the world and the light of life mean that there is, means that there is a work for him. And in these little five verses right here at the beginning of the chapter, this conversation, are these little like touch points on what are the works that has, he has been sent to do. So first in verse one of Jesus passing by, stopping and, and looking at the blind man from birth, this is this little invitation, this little, this little note that we have other past scriptures that tell us about it, but it's a reminder that the work of the light of the world begins in a loving attention to those that are not seen. 
loving attention to those that, that currently are sitting in the darkness. You might think I'm reading into this, but you'd also say that Athanasius was reading too much into it. He's one of the church fathers, one of the greatest theologians of the church. So if you think I'm wrong, you could take it up with him. But Athanasius notices in verse two how the disciples go, they ask him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents that he was born blind? That Athanasius saw that Jesus must have been staring at this man focused on him, looking at him, contemplating him, so much so that the disciples notice what he's looking at and interrupt him. Jesus is staring at him and he goes, and he pull him out of it. What happened to that? How did he get here? So the first thing that the work of light begins in is it's a work of loving attention to those that are in a deep place of need and those that are often unseen by the world. But second, we find that the work of love is about the confrontation of darkness. Verse two and three, the debate kind of conversation they have is they ask him about the blind man. Who sinned, this man or his parents that he was born blind? Jesus' answer, neither this man nor his parents sinned. Jesus answered, this came about so that God's works might be displayed in him. There's so much interesting historical belief about sin and how people are born with different, like how do people get born the way that they're born? So much here, but just, but just note, what Jesus is saying is that the confrontation of darkness that he has come to do does not come through abstract theological answers, but active presence and works within the life of people. So to just notice here that so often what happens with illumination and enlightenment is the response and answer to the world's darkness is, I have all the answers for why the world is the way that it is. I've got a theological system for why this person was born this way, for that earthquake over here, for this war over here. And it allows us to say, that's how we confront the darkness with really good answers. Jesus' response is, the way that I'm here to confront the darkness is not by giving you theological answers, but giving you myself, giving you my presence, bringing about the works that I've been sent to do. But he continues back there in the mandatory mission statement where this is not just a love that confronts the darkness, it's actually a mandatory mission that has been given by the Father. Jesus says, we must do the works of him who sent me, must, sent this mission of Jesus is not, is not an optional. It's not like a side thing for Jesus. Oh, while we're here, I guess, you know, we'll do some healing stuff. This is why I've been sent. This is what I must do. But did you notice the weird pronoun? We must do the works of him who sent me. Jesus understands that his light of the world work is actually a shared vocation. We, me and my disciples, must do the work of him who sent me. It would have made sense for Jesus to say, while I'm still in the, I'm in the light of the world and so I have to do the works that the Father sent me to do. But he says, we, my disciples, share in the work and the task that the Father has given to me. And then finally, there's the urgency. In verses four through five, while it is still day, while I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Once again, whole sermon here. Uh, but Jesus is noting the fact that this unique moment of him being physically at work within the world is coming to an end at his cross. And so he's going, I've got limited time to do the works that the Father sent me to do. And that urgency, because it's a shared work, also moves on to us because we are the ones that now with the Holy Spirit are... Um, I'm trying to think of some of the language of the scriptures. We are the children of light, as 1 John says. Hebrews calls Christians the enlightened ones. Or Jesus in Matthew, in the Sermon on the Mount, he says what? You are the light of the world. I am the light of the world. 
For those who come to me are with me. You now are the light of the world because I am in you. And so as long as you are in the world, you are the light of the world. But you don't know how long you're going to be in the world. And so there's likewise an urgency to the mission and the task for you as well. So here we go. The light of the world is what Jesus has claimed for himself. It's, It's radically inclusive. Anybody can get on it, but it's singularly exclusive. It's only found in Jesus. And it's a mission to, to bring about the works of God within the world that are motivated in love. It's a confrontation of darkness. It's a shared work. It's an urgent work. And it's, it's a mandatory. It's not, for us, a optional side thing, doing the works of light. It is, it is why we are here. And so this moves us from Jesus' statement about what it means for him to be I am the life to the sign. So if this, this was the out of the burning bush I am moment, we're now moving into the sign, the burning bush itself, which is the healing of the, mo- the man born blind. And I just love for all of the like maybe esoteric feelings of like I am the light of the world may bring about for us. The first thing that we find the light of the world doing is working with dirt under his fingernails. Though Jesus regularly will heal with just a touch or a word Here, the burning bush moment is we look in and we're meant to ponder what's going on with Jesus taking mud and saliva, making little dirt pie, like mud pie with his spit. And it's like, that's what my two-year-old does. Like, what's Jesus doing here? This seems to be, it's it's a riddle that Jesus is inviting us all to. He's clearly doing something intentional. And so for the past 2,000 years, Christians have been like uh, trying to figure it out. But here's what seems to me is this is an allusion to Genesis 2, verse 7. When God creates humans, Adam and Eve, he makes them up out of the dust of the earth, the dust of the ground. And then he fashions them and then breathes life into them. And so here you have this sign where Jesus has just claimed to be I am, the God who spoke, I am the light of the world. And he now gets down and does the same creative work. So he literally says Genesis 1 stuff, and then he starts doing Genesis 2 stuff. And it's meant to just be like, oh, he's the God that created everything. So he makes the mud pie, he spreads it on the man's face. I don't know if he asks first. We don't find out. Like he just blinded that there's mud on his face. Like we don't know. But then he sends him to go to the pool of Siloam and the man washes and then his sight returns. And, and what is this other than an act of confronting the darkness of the world? What is this other than the God who said, let there be light in Genesis 1? Once again saying over one person's life, let there be light. Jürgen Moltmann, a theologian that I never can pronounce his first or last name, uh, he writes, when Jesus expels demons and heals the sick, he's driving out of creation the powers of destruction, or we might say of darkness, and is healing and restoring created beings who are hurt and sick. The lordship of God to which these healings witness restores creation to health. This is, oh, Jesus' healings are not supernatural miracles in a natural world. Rather, they are the only truly natural thing in a world that is unnatural, demonized, and wounded. This is not him introducing something new to creation. It's light pushing back the darkness to bring out what was, what was there, but what was missing, what wasn't seen. And so in the same way, the healing work of what Jesus wants to do in your life, the healing work, and this is right now we're just talking about physically, is that Jesus, part of what he's come to do is to drive out darkness, to drive out blindness, to drive out sickness, to drive out even death itself. And so whenever Jesus is doing these miracles and these healings, what we're getting in a little view into is that this is what Jesus' work is. What he's going to do ultimately 
in new creation and in his return. And yet Jesus regularly in his life will have these little inbreaking moments where we, so to speak, the blinds get opened really quickly and we get to see what new creation will be like. And so part of what it means for us to be the church, for we must do the works of him who sent me, is that the church is a people who are meeting the physical, tangible needs of those in our city. Now, this is all different kinds of ways. We could go down so many trains here. We could go through our, our work in foster care and our work with our neighbors and our just attentive presence to those that we regularly drive by on street corners. But even here, just to get very intentional in the text, is this is part of the work of healing within the life of the church. And so every single week, we have our prayer team that's available to lay hands to pray for healing. Why? Because we must do the works of him who sent me. Now, we're gonna spend a lot more time on this healing and prayer and, and how does this play out in the life of the church and even what do we do with the fact that sometimes healing happens but sometimes it doesn't in our next series where we're gonna be talking about the ongoing works of the Spirit which are the works of light. But, but I would just say the invitation of Jesus is in the midst of our questions, that doesn't, that, that doesn't mean we stop praying. That even in the midst of our questions, and we, we will get to those, we, le- we realize we must do the works of him who sent me. There's a healing work to do. But what's really interesting here, and the the, uh, blind man alludes to it in uh, chapter 9, verse 32, that this is the only healing of a blind man up to this point in the Bible. Think about all the Old Testament, all the crazy, you got snake staffs and talking donkeys, and nobody ever had their eyes. There's a dude who got eaten by a fish, spit out three days later, and you're like, why no eyes being fixed, right? It just... the whole point is there's something unique that Jesus is, is bringing about. Even more than that, not only is this the first healing of the blind in all of the story of scripture up to this point, when you read through the gospels, Jesus is not just unique in his healing of the blind, he's dedicated. There are more healings of this is, here's a good party thing. You wanna do a trivia game next time you're hanging out with friends? What did Jesus do more miracles of than any other in his life? It's healing the blind. So yeah, hmm, that's exactly what you're supposed to do. Hmm. What's going on there? It seems, and you'll forgive the pun, Jesus had an eye out for the blind. Thank you. Um, thank you. Um, so Jesus had an eye out, and, and not, and, and once, specifically, yes and amen, like we just talked about, out of compassion for their situation and a desire to bring life and light to them. But also because Jesus and, and him as someone shaped by the Old Testament all throughout the Hebrew Scriptures understood that blindness is the perfect metaphor for the condition of humanity. Our present condition, our present reality is, like I said a moment ago, a leg race in a lava tube, running around this world blind. And so more than just physical sight, what we need is spiritual healing as well. We need enlightenment. We need revelation. We need to see, to know, to be loved, to belong to Jesus, to find all of ourselves healed and understand, like just to, to come to, this is it, this is it. This is what you need at the deepest part of your life is to truly actually find that despite all of your mess, you are loved and longed for by Jesus and that he has an incredible life for you that he wants to work through you. That doesn't mean it's gonna go great. It's probably gonna be really hard, but that is like the sweet stuff that Jesus wants to do through you for the sake of this world. And it all begins with first receiving Jesus as he claimed to be. It all begins with Jesus's identity, a revelation of the I am at the center of the burning bush. But what's really interesting here is unlike his physical sight, 
the spiritual sight of the blind man doesn't come back instantly. It comes back progressively over the course of the story. You'll see behind me, just to kind of map this out. In verse 11, he's now seeing, and they're like, hey, who did this? He begins with the man they call Jesus. Like, he's like, I think that's his name. Like, we're beginning with just like basic level progressive revelation. Like, the, the dimming switch is just barely on. And then it moves into verse 17. He must be a prophet. It moves forward into verse 25. He's the one that I was blind, now I see. And then in verse 33, he goes, he must be from God. Then till finally in verse 38, he says, Lord, I believe, and he falls down and worships him. There's this progressive revelation where he moves over the course of an afternoon from, I, I don't know his name, to he is the center of my life. He is God in the flesh. I'm falling on my face before him. And I love this little moment because I, I think it helps us appropriate and understand the way that God's light works within the life of those around us. I think there's some of us that want to do the works of God, that want to bring about darkness or, or bring light in the midst of people's darkness, to bring people to Jesus, to help him see that. But we feel like we've got to make a jump from like, who is Jesus? To like fall down and worship him in, in like a 30 minute conversation over like guacamole. And just like, yeah, man, you're going to have to. And we just, we're exhausted. I love this because what this invites us into is just to receive that with our neighbors, our coworkers, our friends, our families, is just the aim of our conversation is just to lovingly notice where they are and just to ask, what would it mean for the, the dimmer switch to go up just a couple more notches? So if they don't even know who Jesus is, what would it mean to just introduce, like just have conversations about just Jesus as a historical person and just the craziness of the historical impact that he's made. If they're beginning to see him, for, to move, right? To just slowly move them along. And in the same way, for some of you that are skeptics or investigating, checking out the faith, like to, just for Jesus as Lord, you're like, I'm not there yet. That's totally okay. I, I totally get that is a big jump to make. But just who is he to you? Where are you at with Jesus? What questions do you have? What concerns in the movement from, you know, I think that's his name to Lord, where are you? And, and I don't say naming what's the next step so that you can make that next step, but just to acknowledge that Jesus' claim for himself is Lord and an invitation to belief. And so if you're wanting to look into Jesus and just, just to go, okay, what's my next step? And what questions do I need to have? What people, what coffee, what lunch do I need to go out with someone? What books do I need to read? What, what things do I just need to pray and deal with within myself? I just love the progressive revelation of the blind man because it opens us up to the way that God works within the world. Sometimes you get the Paul on the road to Damascus lightning bolt. But most of the time, it's the slow, progressive, dimmer switch that happens. Just a couple other quick notes is just notice in the giving of sight that this doesn't just change how the man sees the world, but how the world sees the man. When he comes back seeing, there's a whole debate. This can't possibly be the guy that we saw begging last week. But now he is. He doesn't just transform the way he sees, but there's a transformation of how the others see him. That's just a nugget. But I love that in all of the physical side and the spiritual side, both are a testament of grace. Jesus doesn't come up to the blind man and what can I do for you? What do you want me to do? He doesn't come up to the blind man and ask, you know, hey, I've, I've got some kind of healing juju here for you, but why? Why should I give it to you? What are you gonna do with the gift that I give you that's gonna, you know, you know be the down payment on you going out into the world and doing that? It's just grace. It's just unmerited love that Jesus meets the man in the midst of his physical and spiritual need and he come, in the midst of his inability and gives him everything that he needs. 
It's grace, which is the primary reason, the second effect of the light that the hat, it's the primary reason why the light has a second effect in the world. If it is grace, there's a second effect that the world has, uh, the light has on the world. 8, 39, 41, at the end of the passage, Jesus says, I came into this world for judgment in order that those who do not see will see and those who do see will become blind. Do you notice the two impacts that the light has on the world? One is that as the light comes into the world, those who do not see are able to see, but those who do see will be blinded by the light, so to speak. Some of the Pharisees were with him. They heard these things and they asked him, we aren't blind too, are we? He says, if you were blind, you wouldn't have sin. But now that you say we see, your sin remains. Jesus has come to illuminate the lives of those who know that they're blind. And Jesus speaking about those who see that will be blind is is kind of cryptic and ironic way of saying those who think they see. Those who assume that they're seeing things just fine. It's his way of talking about everything that we read in the story, the way that the Pharisees were behaving on that afternoon. The repeated phrase of the Pharisees throughout the passage is, we know, we know this, we know that, we see. There's a confidence that they carry. We even read in the conversation with the parents that the parents know that they've already decided what they think about Jesus. Even more, as we read through the story, we find them treating their man-made regulations about Sabbath as more significant than a never-before-seen display of healing. They've got nobody has ever been born blind that now sees. You've got somebody that's doing it. They have talked to multiple witnesses to confirm it. And they're more worried, not just about Sabbath, their little man-made regulations about him breaking our version of Sabbath. For all of our talk about the fear of uh, blind faith, which is totally not good, this passage warns us of a blind unbelief, a refusal to see an inability to see what is right in front of you. And so this is what's happened. They've already decided. We know. They present themselves as already having it figured out. They've already got it together. And in doing so, they show themselves as blind to the miracle, the burning bush that's right in front of them. Even more, not just blind to what's right in front of them, but hiding themselves from what is in them. All of this growing up out of the Pharisees is, is, is a, this presentation of themselves, this, this, this their anger and vitriol around their own views of the Sabbath is, is about a pride and self-confidence that they have wrapped themselves in. And it's left them unable to see, unwilling to look at, to name the deep darkness within them. And so they are more worried about saving face than the saving of their souls. 1 John One, verses five through nine says, this is the message we have heard from him and declare to you. God is light and there is absolutely no darkness in him. If we say we have fellowship with him and yet we walk in darkness, we're lying and are not practicing the truth. What more have the Pharisees been doing throughout this passage than declaring we have the light, we have fellowship with Moses and with God of our fathers while walking in the darkness? Verse seven, if we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. 
If we say we have no sin, we're deceiving ourselves. The truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. It is only when we recognize, it is only when we confess, it is only when we name that we are presently blind and walking in darkness that we're able to actually find the light. And for all of our ignoring, all of our indifference to our darkness, we think it's actually keeping us from the difficult things, but in reality, we're just, we're competing in a leg race, in a lava tube. And, and, and the, the tension is you're running from, actually, not just running around in the dark, you're running from the light. Charles Spurgeon writes, it's not our littleness that hinders Christ, but our bigness. It's not our weakness that hinders Christ, it's our strength. It's not our darkness that hinders Christ, it's our supposed light that holds back his hand. You see, the problem with the Pharisees wasn't their blindness, and it wasn't their sin, but the walls that they built up to keep that part of them out from the public eye, even out from their own perception. And so to see Jesus, to see the light of the world, to see the burning bush, to enter into the holy ground, to find a new, deep, true revelation of who God is and an illumination of your identity. Like Moses, you have to take off your sandals. Now, most of us, to go back to that weird bit in the beginning, most of us understand taking off your shoes or taking off your sandals in a largely kind of the way that we live in our homes work today. That it's almost as if Jesus is like, oh, hey, come on in. Uh, don't track any of you know, your dirt before you come in the house, so go and you know, take your shoes off right there. They're outside. He, it, it's, he's walking dirty shoes onto dirt. It's, so it must be something other than God being worried about what Moses might be bringing in. It seems in the sandals that God is more worried about what gets between Moses and God. This is the understanding of so many of the rabbinic commentators throughout history, those reflecting on these passages for thousands of years, is that what God is inviting Moses into and in taking off his shoes is like Adam and Eve to take off the fig leaves and enter back into the presence of God in a state of semi-nakedness. This is why the priests would serve barefoot in the temple. It was a small but, but physical stepping out of, of entering back into what humans were meant to be, naked and without shame before God, vulnerable and honest about all of our stuff, and yet finding that there's no cause for guilt or shame in the midst of it. The call to take off your sandals, the call to confess is to lay aside our coverings, to set down our pretenses, to tear down the walls that we've put up around our true selves, the true selves that are far more dark than we want to give credit for. As Church Father Augustine wrote in his commentary on the sandals, he understood the sandals as an image of sin and our self-protection, whether that is through religious works or just through the self that we present to others that is not the true self, not our true place, not where we really are. And so to take off our shoes is to enter into a place of trust and surrender and vulnerability.
when uh, we were teaching, we're still teaching Arlo, but when we were teaching Emma how to swim, the big movement was um, to her swimming without floaties. And uh, for the longest time, there was a, a time of her jumping into my arms and the floaties being there and being okay because she's learning. But the more that she was learning how to swim, there came a point where she had to take the floaties off and to actually jump with her whole self, with all her ability and inability to swim and actually trust that the father was going to catch her and be there for her. Whether you want to call it sandals, whether you want to call it floaties, whether you want to call it just the darkness that we hide ourselves in, the invitation to step into the light is actually to fully surrender yourself for all the good, the bad, and especially the ugly and find there's a God who receives you and actually wants that you. To see Jesus truly, to see ourselves as he sees us, we must allow him, we must allow ourselves, we must allow others to see us for all that we've done and all that we're going through. To see us as we presently are so that we might see ourselves as God presently sees us through Christ. You see, God has a high holy standard for approaching him and it's bare feet. It's trust, it's surrender, it's vulnerability. You can leave your good works at the door and you can kick off the sandals because what God wants most is not the you that you pretend to be, but the you that you really are. That's the you he's interested in touching. That's the you that he's interested in healing. And so like I said, First John calls it confession. Moses understood it as taking off his shoes. Jesus understood it as naming your own blindness so that you can see. But all of it is an invitation to bring our darkness to the light. Now, there are some of you today that, like, I've walked in and, like, you don't need any extra help from Ryan. Like, you, Holy Spirit, already at work, you are aware of the darkness. There is something, some pattern, some thought, some act that you are identifying just as we've been talking right now. I may not be a Pharisee, but I've got this thing that I know that Jesus is inviting. Jesus wants to heal me, but I just don't trust that he either loves me enough to deal with that or that my, my context, my community is not a safe enough place to bring that out, to allow people to see me for who I am. But for some of us, we have been so indifferent and so ignorant of that for so long or just presently like, the way that this all works is it's so easy to become self-deceived. And even when you add to that like a devil-deceived level of, of not seeing what's going on there, this is why the prayer of confession is so vital to the life of following and walking with Jesus. Psalm 139 opens with, Lord, you have searched me and known me. And so confession is, is just simply asking God to search and know me. Shine a light on my heart. Shine a light on my life. You know me better than I do. And I trust at the end of the day, if you, Jesus, the Jesus that I know you are is gentle. And so I ask you just to gently, lovingly reveal myself to me, especially the parts that I don't currently see or maybe I don't want to see. And so whatever gets brought up just to hear within your spirit, God bringing up something, whatever God has searched and brought to life, confession is then we name it out loud. We, in prayer, we name the moment, we name the thought pattern, we name the thing, we confess it to God. We weaken its power as we bring it to light. 
we call on the power and the forgiveness of Jesus and what he's done through his cross and resurrection to not just forgive us, yes and amen, but to free us into a life of following and walking in the light as he is in the light. And so we do this work always before God and most often before others. And so confession is simply how we step into Jesus' words. Happy or blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Jesus says those who see God is not the perfect in heart, but the pure. Those that are an undivided heart, a naked heart, an honest heart, a sandalless heart, a floaty-less heart, the heart that is willing to fully jump into God. Those are the ones that will see God. And as long as we hide ourselves from him and from others, we hide ourselves from seeing him for who he is. But the invitation of today, the invitation that the work that Jesus wants to do is in the midst of your darkness, speak, let there be light. Let's pray.